Good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Hey, I want to welcome you. If you are new with us this morning, um, you picked the wrong Sunday to come. <laughs> you got second string in, in the pulpit. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Austin Oaks Church. Um, our senior pastor is on sabbatical, and we're in the midst of a series, and it's a really hard message. I'm just going to lay it all out there. So uh, I'm just going to pray grace upon you if this is your first time here. Um, I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. We're in, and let me do this. We're in the midst of a series titled Dark Matter. And what we've been doing as a church in this season, which is traditionally called a season of Lent, which is a period that, that the church kind of prepares for Easter. And part of that preparation is, is focusing on the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of ourselves, our sinfulness, leading up to what Jesus did for us uh, on the cross, and Easter is that celebration next week. So come back next week. I tell you, I promise you, it'll be so upbeat, so amazing. Like, don't let, let this just be kind of a preparation. It's kind of like when you don't eat before a meal, right, and you're really hungry, and it makes the meal taste that much better. So that, that's where we're at right now, and we're in this series called Dark Matter, which is a metaphor uh, for what we're talking about, sin. Dark matter is this phenomenal concept that, that scientists have discovered about our universe, that there's uh, tons of dark matter is what they've labeled it out in our universe that can't be detected by any tools that we have known to man right now, at least in terms of measuring. It doesn't give off light. It doesn't absorb light. It doesn't reflect light, uh, any of those things. So they have no way of measuring it other than the fact that they see the effects of it throughout the whole universe. Like this dark matter gives off gravitational pull. So we all know, because you all paid attention in your science classes, I'm a former science teacher, so just let me geek out a little bit. We all paid attention, just like my wife did, and knows that it's important how fast a rock falls. That's what she always used to make fun of me as a physics student. She said, who cares how fast a rock falls? Like then her phrase was, as long as you get out of its way, Right, so anyways, we know that the earth orbits the sun because there's this gravitational pull on it. So they, they can determine the mass. There's a simple math on that. But what scientists have determined is that they can't explain the motion of our galaxies and stars and things out there. It makes absolutely no sense if the only matter in our universe is the stuff that we can see. It would not orbit and, and do the things that it does with its motion. And so what, on their calculations, what they've calculated is there's got to be 95% more stuff out there that we just can't detect because that's how much extra gravity would cause the kind of motions that they see. And so that's our, our picture. It is a lot like sin in our lives. We are so good at picking out the obvious. Oh, there's sin there, and that, that's obvious, that's obvious. We see it out there, but we don't realize that that dark matter, that sin resides right here in each one of us. And just as we saw as we've gone through this journey, we said, where did sin start? And it started in that garden when we didn't think God was good enough, and so we took things into our own hands, and we made a decision as humans that we shouldn't have. And it's doubting God's goodness that brought sin into this world. And, and immediately its effects were there. We blamed Adam and Adam blamed this woman that you gave me. She picked that fruit and then she said, well, it's a snake. He deceived me. And that's, that's the, how we know there's sin. We're master blamers, right? When I go to my nightstand and my keys aren't there, my car keys, you know what the first thing is? Is which of my kids took my keys? <laughs> <laughs> 
because I didn't lose them, right? My kids can't even drive yet, but it's their fault that my kids, I mean, it's just our default mode. We want to blame, we want to point outside. Last week, we saw the journey that sin took us on. And today, we're going to look at the destiny of sin. What's the final destination of sin? Where is it end? Um, I have the glorious privilege this morning of speaking on hell. I have a lot of mixed emotions about this. Um, it's been hitting me uh, throughout the whole week. I've woke up and, and at times been in tears just thinking about this concept, something that I've never spent this much time. I've preached on this a number of times within messages or within topics and other things that I've gone through the Bible. I've never just taken a whole message to focus on it. And it's been extremely challenging, um, enlightening, painful, glorious, all these mixed emotions. I can't even put them into to words, honestly. In fact, someone brought up this, just so you get an idea, someone brought this, this wasn't here until the middle of the, the first service. So I know, you know, it's not, it's not typical that I cry. So, <laughs> so just, just be prepared. And I, and I say this, to just, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of context. Let me just make these opening statements, and that will help set my heart at ease and maybe prepare you as well. Uh, first, I need you to know that, that I am for you. I'm for you. I love this church. I've grown to love it more um, as I've been here. Uh, And I choose to love it despite your behaviors at times. I choose to love you. I'm just saying that. Uh, But like a loving father who loves and warns and disciplines his children to keep them from danger, uh, so this message is for us. You can't say you love your children if you fail to warn them from the dangers in our world. When our kids were little, um, we chose not to put the little electrical plugs in the outlets to plug them up. We chose instead to teach and train them not to go to the outlets. I never said, hey, you should check that out. Hey, grab some scissors and just start playing over by the outlet. And when they did that, to not say anything about the danger of that is not loving. In fact, we would, as they would do that, we would slap their hand. We would inflict a very small amount of pain on their hand to avoid them from experiencing an incredibly horrible amount of pain that would have come from putting that thing in the outlet. I did that, we did that because we love our children. And this message is like that. I want you to hear that. First, no, at times, understand this, I may seem angry at times, and at other times I may weep. Uh, Sin, evil, and hell make me angry. I hate some of the things I see in this world. It gets me really upset when I see defenseless people being taken advantage by very horrible and evil people. And what's even worse is it makes me upset when I see that same kind of behavior in myself. 
And it makes me weep for those who are experiencing that oppression and experiencing the brunt of sin and the damage in their life. Just as any of us feel when we see the horrors that exist in our world. So I, I want you to, to hear that, that this is that kind of message. It's a hard one. I, I normally try to include a lot of humor just to lighten things up or to help illustrate this. Uh, there's not going to be a lot in this one. It's really not funny. You're going to get a little bit. I'm going to give you a breath here at the beginning, so enjoy it. Take a deep breath of this little bit of humor that's going to help set the tone for what Jesus is speaking to us today. And then I I'm just need you to man up and woman up. This is good. It, it's good for you to hear this. It's hard for me to share this. It's good for us to hear this. I didn't realize how much we as a church and we as a church in America need this message today. So let me, let me just give you a breath right here. We're going we're gonna to start with this little bit of humor. Uh, there's a passage in our, we're in Matthew chapter 13 today. We'll get into that, but I want to read the very last thing Jesus says in this passage is a command for how we're to respond. He says this, he says, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. That's what I'm asking. That's all I'm asking you today. I'm asking you to, to immediately, I know we have defenses up, we have judgments up, we have justifications up, we have all these things in our views of hell because we all know better. I thought I knew better as well. I'm just asking you to, to just let, put that aside for just a, a few handful of minutes and, and just listen. Just listen. This is a video I want to show you. It's, it's a video that's it's been probably some of the best marriage counseling my wife and I have ever gotten. Right? So we have, sometimes we have discussions, because that's what Christians, especially pastors, have with their wives. We don't have arguments, we have discussions. Yes, they look like arguments, I know, they look like fights even, but they're just discussions. So this has been something that, that we'll just use when, when we start to heighten a little bit, because we both just crack up every time we see this video. And it's one of those things we call each other, we say, when they're not listening, we say, listen, Linda, Linda, listen. So watch this video because it's my heart for us as we go through this message. They can listen to me, listen to me. Like, like I do this all the time, and if I go out at the, at the house or something, Matthew has his toys, and then Matthew has all his toys. Okay, but I have to yell at you guys. Okay, what? Like everything they do at this house, it can touch everything at Grandma's house. Okay. Okay, then what? Then you're not listening to me. Then you're not listening to me. Great. Worth, worth it. Yeah, it's worth it. Let me pray, and we're going to jump in, okay? Let's bow our heads. Father God... Help us listen. Help me, Lord, communicate your heart on this. Lord, do not let me get in the way of what you have made very clear. But let me mess it up with my insights or the insights of this world. Let me just allow Jesus to speak as he spoke and the spirit to work as only he can work in each of us, Lord. I need your strength today 
Um, we need your ears today. So please give us ears to hear what you have shared with your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A member of the royal family was leaving one of the prominent places of worship in England, and she asked her presiding minister, um, is it true that there is a hell? And the minister replied, oh, your highness, Jesus taught so. The church has always believed so, and the creeds teach us so. And the reply he got from her was this, then why in the name of God will you not say so? As I heard that, I thought, is this true in our American church as well? I actually asked, asked several of our staff people, some that have been believers for a long time, some who have been in ministry for several decades, when was the last time you heard a message on hell? And not one could recall a message on this topic. Maybe mentions of it here and there and passing bys in the midst of something, but never a message on it. Yet as we see, the Bible addresses it regularly. No one, no one speaks of it more than Jesus does. No one. It's ironic uh, that we speak about cancer pretty regularly. We raise millions of dollars and hold endless campaigns around it. We all know if you ever have cancer, you need to know about it in order to beat it. We talk about racism, we talk about sexism, pandemics, sex trafficking, and child abuse religiously. These are topics that are regularly brought up and regularly raised money and campaigns and groups and organizations form around these things, and rightly so in our world. We must expose the seriousness of these things if we hope to avoid them. But yet, we avoid hell. Let's admit it. We don't really know how to handle it. We're embarrassed of it. Maybe we're ashamed. Maybe we're upset. And sometimes we're, maybe more times than often, we're even very arrogant about it. So why hell? What, what's its purpose? Why does it exist? And what did God intend with it? And how do we diminish some of the different weird things that have been taught about it? We're not going to answer every single one of those today. But I do hope to answer at least in one simple big picture way, why? Why hell? And, and two things I think that this parable that Jesus taught on teach us so clearly that if we'll just hear it and listen, will deeply enrich us as Christians. Not necessarily as Americans. It'll ruin your American dream. Let me tell you that. But it'll enrich you as a follower of Jesus Christ tremendously. 
So one question I think we'll see in this is, is if God is real, why does evil still exist? That's a, a question of the ages. People have asked it over and over again. As I was studying this passage, I realized Jesus answered this brilliantly here. He didn't answer it the way we want it, but he answers it brilliantly in this passage. And the second thing is, what is the final destination of evil? So why does evil exist if, if Jesus is present or God's here? And what's the final destination for it? So let's jump in. This is a really simple, clear story that I think all of us can follow along. It's in, it's in Matthew chapter 13, the first of the Gospels. And, and this is a great chapter. If you're a new believer or even a long-term believer, I'd encourage you, weave this chapter into your reading on a regular basis. Because Jesus, in a masterful way, teaches all these parables on the kingdom. They're big picture, sweeping teachings about principles we can help understand what the kingdom is like and, and, and what this world is like in comparison. And this is one of them. He's going to teach this parable. And what's unique about this one, it's one of the few parables that Jesus does this with, is he's going to teach the parable to a group of people with his disciples there. He's going to teach this parable to all of them. He's going to teach a few other things. And then he's going to leave and they're going to go into a home and his disciples are going to come up to him and say, hey, hey Jesus, would you explain what you meant by that, that, that parable that you told? And we're going to get to hear Jesus himself explain the parable to his disciples. So we're going to read the parable. You're going to see that. And we're going to skip some verses where he taught on some other things in the kingdom. And then we're going to come back to where he explains it to them. And this is fascinating. I mean, it's going to blow your mind how much Jesus teaches us in this simple passage and how much it explains about a lot of things in our world. I hope you're excited about that. So first, let's read it. In, in, in Matthew chapter 13, he starts in verse 24. He says, here is another story that Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night as the worker slept, his enemy came and planted weeds amongst the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. And the farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull the weeds out, they asked. No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and put the wheat in the barn." So let me explain this a little bit so you kind of get the gist of it. A couple things that are important to understand this before we go into the explanation. First is this, that, that the field he's, uh, here, it, he plants, the farmer plants, and someone plants some other things, and you think, well, why wouldn't they just rip the weeds out at the beginning? The, the type of weed that, that, that the Greek term refers to is a weed of that time that looked exactly like wheat. In fact, it grows up looking exactly like it, right next to it. You can't tell the difference to, of them until they come to full fruition and ripeness, and this weed never produces any seed or any grain, and the wheat produces grain. And, and this wasn't all that uncommon back then. In fact, if you search up Roman laws, there are Roman laws that call this like biological warfare. It was things that happened back then that enemies of someone would go into their field and they'd, they'd kind of, you know, do this kind of warfare with them to, to, to be, boost their own crop and their own sales by ruining someone else's crop. So this was something that they would have been very familiar with, this concept. 
And so that's what's happening here is, is he does that. He said, let them grow until harvest, then you can determine the difference and, and we'll deal with it then. So that's the end of the parable. Then we see, if we go into verse 36, that Jesus slips away with his disciples. They're in a house and they're alone with them and they ask this question. It says, then leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went into the house. His disciples said, please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, the son of man, listen, listen, he's telling us everything that they mean. The son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world. Now this is so important. Many people interpret this and use this kind of principle within the church setting. They think this is a parable for the church. It's not. What does it say? What does he say the field is? The world. Okay. This is a principle that he's laying down for the world. And we know that the field is the farmers. He owns it. God owns the whole world. Even though the enemy may be the prince and the power of this regional heir, God ultimately owns the whole thing. And this is the world. He's saying this is what you do in the world. He's not saying this is how we should act in the church. Because he says let that evil exist until the very end and God will deal with it. He never says that to us as the church. He doesn't say, hey, if there's evil, wicked people that rise up amongst you and they want to get on staff and they want to lead in the church and they want to wreak havoc, just let them be there until the end of the age. He never says that to us as a church. He gives us clear instructions in the Bible, Matthew 18 is one of them. Several places, Paul is addressing it in First and Second Corinthians. If there's people doing evil things and there's teachers teaching wrong, evil things, you are to confront them lovingly, individually. If they don't listen, you bring a brother with you. If they don't listen, then you take it to the leadership of the church or the body of the church. If, you know, depending on the size of it, that can change that dynamic. But you remove them if they don't repent of that evil. So that's church setting there. This is the world. Jesus is talking about the world as a whole, how God sees the world. He says the weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The the good seed would represent the people in the kingdom. The enemy who planted the weeds among the weed is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the world. And the harvesters are the angels. And he's going to explain this, and this is really important. He spends majority of his time talking about the negative side of this. He said, just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So let me just show you how Jesus addresses two of these key things here. Is God real? Why does he allow evil to exist? And then what is the final destination of evil? First is this. God allows the presence of evil for a season. God allows the presence of evil for a season. That's what he's teaching us here. He allows it for a season. We're not going to eliminate it. We're not going to get rid of it. We're not going to make heaven on earth here ourselves. Until he comes, he will address it properly. In fact, this is, I found, the best answer to the age-old question that we all can often ask and people can ask. Why does evil exist if God is good? 
Why does evil exist if God is good? So here's how I want to challenge you to think about that. In fact, here's where I'd like you to start. If you think, and we often do, we do this all the time. Adam and Eve did it from the very beginning. If, if we think we're so good that we should stop and ask God, why did you do things this way? I'm going to give you that. I'm, I'm just going to pretend that you actually are that smart for a moment, okay? That you're that good. So, so let me just do this then. Let me just say, if you're going to do that, to be consistent then and to have integrity, if you're going to ask God, God, why do you allow evil to exist if you're good? Then I want to just ask you this, to be consistent. Because we want to be, have integrity. We want to, if we're good, if you're really good to be able to make that question, then I want to ask this. What do you do? Do you ever allow evil to exist in areas that you have some control over? Like when, when your kids, when they do something really bad, do you just wipe them out? Because you know what? I am not going to allow evil to exist on my watch. Or your spouse. Right? Spouses, uh, we can do some pretty mean things to one another. Do you just wipe your spouse out because they did some evil? Or your coworker? Or a friend? Like you've been hurt by friends, you've been hurt by coworkers, that's evil. Why don't you just eliminate them if, if, if you feel like you know better? And now let me get really personal, because that wasn't that personal. Are you consistent with that thought with yourself? When you've done something really bad, do you have the integrity to say, you know what? I struggle that God allows evil to exist and he's good, I'm good. I'm not gonna let it do it, I'm taking myself out. I'm just evil, I, I shouldn't be here, I'm gonna be harmful. Do you do that? We don't. That's why this is the best answer. It exists because the God who created everything has allowed it to exist for this season. The Bible talks about all the other ways in which he uses it for greater purposes, but this is why. What do we know? What can we know? We know that our rebellion brought sin into the world. That's what we learned two weeks ago. Our rebellion brought sin into the world. But don't read more into this parable than what it says. We often think, oh, well, I guess I'm a wheat. I'm, I was planted as wheat, and, and these people, man, my neighbors, I think, they were, I think they're tares. I, re I really do, the way they, they act sometimes. That's not what Jesus is saying in this parable. No one is born wheat. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is Jesus is the source of all wheat and tares are the source come from the devil. But the Bible tells us that every single one of us is born a tare. Everyone. Jesus is the only sinless person to ever be born. Now we become wheat by the grace of God. We become wheat when the Holy Spirit plants this truth in us and we believe in Jesus and it changes us from tares to wheat. And as long as we're here living and breathing, the reason we exist is because there's more tares out there like we were that God is turning into wheat. Don't Read that into this parable. That's not the point that Jesus is making. He's talking about the existence of evil and the existence of good and why they're there. Also, don't be fooled by thinking that only the Hitlers and Charlie Mansons of this world are evil. Even people who seem to do good apart from God, 
are seen as evil when they reject Jesus as their Lord and Savior. When they wrongly use God's world and God's resources for their own purpose. That's evil. When you use someone else's stuff that they have a purpose for, but you use it for your purpose, even if your purpose seems like it's good in your eyes, it's evil. I've been wrestling with how to, how to get this across because I think we struggle with this as Americans so much because we think we've bought into this philosophy that we're born good and in general we're good people and all this stuff, but we don't recognize that a lot of the things that we do in the name of good are horrible in God's sight because we miss who the true owner is, that it's his field. So, so I'm going to illustrate this, and please forgive me if this is too much for you, but you just need to hear this. We know our, our pastor, Brandon's on, on sabbatical. He's going to be gone for several months. His office is vacant right now. What would happen if when he got back, I'd moved all my stuff into his office? said, hey, I, I hope you don't mind. I just made this office my own. I mean, I'm still doing our church work, but I'm just using your stuff for, for what I want to do, what I'm supposed to do. I mean, that would be a bit offensive. Like, it's not mine to do that with. Now, if he gave me permission, but let me just take this a step further. Let's just, let's just say, hey, he's gone. Let's say he's gone the whole time. He's not even here for those four months. And let's I say, hey, man, his house, man, I- I'm going to move into his house, too. I'm going to claim his house as mine. And his kids, these are now, they're my kids. There's no father here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them. I'm gonna, these are mine. I'm going to use these kids. I'm going to use this house. I'm going to do what I want with them, even if it's good things. I'm just going to claim. That would be a horribly evil thing to do, even if I did good things. Because they don't belong to me. I'm not the one to set the purpose for something that belongs to someone else. And we do that every single day with God. When we do our good things that are on our agenda and on our plan and we neglect what he has clearly called us to do and be as Christians. Let me put it in Jesus' words. He's, he's not quite so kind as I am. He's much ki- more kind, but he's much more direct. Jesus said this to some of the most religious people of his time. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 15 through 13, uh, he says this, 15 through 13. That's a little backwards. Verses 15 and 33. He says, this is Jesus speaking to the religious people of his time. He says, what sorrows await you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you cross land and sea to make one convert. And then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. Church, these people, these Pharisees were some of the most squeaky clean people you would ever meet. The most moral people you might ever meet. And Jesus spoke to them like this. He went on in verse 33 to say this. Snakes, you sons of vipers. Where do you think that metaphor comes from? Have you seen a snake earlier in our series? He's calling them sons of the devil. How will you escape the judgment of hell? Matthew 7 
the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these things about religious people, about people who are all around there. They probably went to church all the time, probably did lots of religious activities. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. It's not the Hitlers and the Charles Mansons that will fill the spaces in hell. It is anyone who arrogantly rejects God's goodness and purpose for this world and instead embraces their own. So why has God put up with evil for so long? Why did Jesus allow it when he was here on earth and and allow it to continue while he was here, even with one of his disciples? Why would he do that? Why was Jesus so kind and compassionate? Think about it. This is Jesus. I I have more things I'm going to share with you that he said. He spoke more on hell, and yet no more societies have ever been built on the kindness and morality of any other teacher than Jesus. He was the most kind and compassionate person to ever live. How could he do that? It's because he knew that judgment was coming. You see, the only way you can turn the other cheek, the only way you can allow someone to deeply harm you and not return it in vain, and not return it in kind, and not harbor that bitterness, and not continue to try to do that, is if you know that true justice is one day coming, and that you don't have to do it. Because I don't know if you're like me, when I've been offended, when I've been hurt, my level of justice for what that other person deserves is usually 10 times worse than what the crime actually required. Unless it comes to someone that I love, then it's way less, or someone that I like, or someone that's in my circle. Then I don't want it to be down there. I am a horrible judge of those kinds of things. But if I know there's someone who's a perfect judge, then I can not have to carry that burden myself. And I can just love people sacrificially the way Jesus teaches us. How do we know that? Well, he tells us in these passages. He says in, in several of them, we see in verse 30, he says, let both go together until the harvest. Then I'll tell the harvester to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them. He explains that further in his explanation in verses 41 through 43. He says this, just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul said this to the church in Thessalonica that was suffering greatly because of the injustice that were being done to him. He says, and God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels. This is just like what Jesus said in his parable. In flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. 
last one is, and they will be punished with an eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. Revelation 20, verses 10 through 15, one of the longer explanations of, of this final time, and they kind of give us this picture. It says, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The fiery lake or the lake of fire is the final name of this destination of called hell. The lake of sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then he goes on to talk about us as humans. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. This is Jesus, this is God on his throne ready to judge. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's thrones, and the books were open, including the book of life. Now, let me help you understand this. It'll help me. The books, there are books that the Bible talks about that record every single deed you and I have ever done, everything we've thought, every motive, everything is there for everyone. That's what these books are. Anything that's been done in the dark, it is there in that book. Every injustice that's been done to you, it's there. And everyone you've done is there. And then there's this book of life. It's another book. And that book is the one of those who have accepted Jesus' sacrifice, who have said, Jesus, you said you paid for all those things in that book? I believe that. I trust that. I don't think I could ever earn my way and, and, and do the things in that book that would ever make me worthy. But you have made me worthy. And when we repent, when we recognize that, then your name is written in the book of life. And God will never hold those things against you. But if you continue to do things your way, then God lets you do that. He says, you're good enough, you think you got everything under control, then we'll measure it with these over here. And that's what that, those books are. And it says, the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then the death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus said this about this as well. Matthew 10, verses 28. He says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is Jesus saying this. He goes on in Matthew chapter 5 to say this in the Sermon on the Mount. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Church, this is Jesus. He's using a, a metaphor in a sense to say, this is serious. Sin is serious. It'll take you to hell. He's not saying, you got to do this. This will somehow save you if you cut it off. He's, he's pointing to something that should be obvious to us. You could, you could gouge out both my eyes. I don't need my eyes because I lust in my heart. 
I would still probably lust at times. I would still have to repent of that because my problem is not my eye. It's my heart. And it's not my hand, it's my heart. And what Jesus is getting in that is that someone's gonna have to cut off their hands, cut out their eyes, gouge, beat, smack, spit in their body for you to make it into heaven. And in that sermon, he tells us who does that. Jesus did that for you and for me. Hell is an infinitely horrible place. It will not be fun because all your friends are there. In fact, one will be unable to have any form of fun or enjoyment forever. I need you to think about this. I need you to to ponder this. Listen, Listen closely, church. Every form of pleasure that you experience, every single one, whether it's gotten in a good, godly way or it's gotten in an explicit, evil way. It doesn't matter. Every form of pleasure you experience, he has given you. It's his common grace that allows us to enjoy anything in this universe, even things gotten illicitly. When you are are addicted to drugs and you use drugs to get some kind of high and and think that helps you, you know, you need to know that even though you got that in a wrong way, that pleasure is a common grace of God. The only reason you experience that pleasure is because God put those pleasure centers in your body. Illicit sex, pornography, promiscuousness, every bit of pleasure. And there's pleasures in those things. Don't get me wrong. You experience pleasure. That's why people do them. But you only experience those because the common grace of God has put those pleasure sensors in your body for you to enjoy it. Your accomplishment, when you accumulate more wealth and you conquer that next deal or you get that promotion, even if you had to cheat to get there or you had to cheat to get that stuff, you feel good, you have pleasure zones, you have things that 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 highlights because God has placed those in you by his common grace. But church, listen, listen. All those are gone in hell. Hell is absolutely void of any of God's grace and goodness. And rightly so, he created them. And, and let me just tell you, this is only part of hell, but l- just listen. I, I, I've shared with this. I've experienced depression before, and, and it's, it was hard in that season. And, and doctors will tell you when you're clinically depressed, that, that largest state, the, the worst part about clinical depression is that everything that used to bring you joy no longer brings you joy. Like you can do the exact same things that you used to do, but when you're in that state, it's like your body doesn't respond at all to joy. And one of the most common struggles when you're at that point in in that state of depression is suicidal thoughts. You see, when all joy is removed from your life, even the things that once brought you joy, even if it's illicit things, it doesn't matter. When you can't do anything to find joy, it's not worth living, it feels like. 
But that's temporal. This will go on forever. Forever. It's horrible. You see, hell is rejecting God's presence. It's rejecting his goodness. It's his glory. It's every good thing. It's saying, I got this. I don't need you. I don't want you. I know what's good. I know what to do with my hands. I know what to do with my eyes. I'll do what I want with my feet. I don't need your counsel, God. And God says, there's a place then if you don't want my goodness. You don't want to be there. You don't want your friends there. You don't want your family there. You don't want your neighbors there. Hell is a real horrible place that no one will want to be. And no one teaches on this more than Jesus. His teaching reveals its reality. But listen, listen up. His suffering for us reveals his love. The very reason Jesus could respond to people with such compassion, with such meekness and restraint is because he knew justice was coming and that he was going to take it for any who was willing. Many of us have have watched the, the movie The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. Oftentimes people will watch it around the season of Easter. And, and there's a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of people that said, I don't even want to watch that. I can't watch it. It's too gruesome. It's too brutal how it portrays the crucifixion of Christ. And some of you have avoided it for that reason. Here's my problem with that. Is we often think the crucifixion itself is the worst part. But it pales in comparison. Lord, help. It pales in comparison to what Jesus experienced from his own father in that window of time. The Bible says it like this, says smitten by God. The scriptures tell us upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. We read this and it says it was the will of the Father, the will of the Lord to crush him. You see, church, we have only seen human smite. We've seen human chastisement. We've seen human crushing. If you're a history buff, you know many of the horrors that humans have inflicted on other humans. Genocides, the Holocaust, this this war we see now, the racism, the sex trafficking. We've we've done horrible smitings on people. Hiroshima, and not necessarily, just the point. The point is they dropped one atom bomb that in an instant, in one instant, in the blink of an eye, 80,000 people died instantly. These things are, are horrible. But they're human smiting. 
This is just us little humans. What do you think of smiting? What do you think of crushing? What do you think of chastisement from the God of the universe, the God who spoke these atoms into existence that have the power that we simply harness? What do you think it would be like to be smitten by him Jesus, Jesus was never phased by wicked storms. Like he slept through them, the Bible tells us. Man, in the, in the presence of powerful, wicked rulers, he had poise and courage like, like no one I've ever met. When he faced demons or, or unhealable people, he simply cast that out with his own words. And a dead person, man, someone who was in the grave for four days, and Jesus simply walked up and said, Lazarus, come on out. None of this stuff fazed Jesus. None of it. Not even, I don't think, the actual physical crucifixion. But you know what got brought, brought God down to his knees three times? Three times. Do you know what brought Jesus God himself down to his knees, weeping, almost the Bible tells us, with sweat like blood coming out of him three times. He said, Father, if there's any other way. It wasn't the beating. It wasn't the soldiers. That was not what brought him to his knees. It was experiencing the absence of his father and the judgment of his father and the wrath for sin upon him at that moment. That made God crumble to his knees. Jesus, people, listen, Jesus faced this hell for you and for me. We deserve to be there. He never did. But he came. He came for you and me. He was sent by his father. He came willingly and he experienced this horrible crushing, this wrath against sin, our sin, so that we could be in this passage, like I said, we could be the righteous who will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. John tells us this, anyone who believes in God's son Anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. You don't have to stay there. I didn't have to stay there. You know, you might be thinking, well, why such a focus on hell, Chad? I mean, let's keep it positive. Let's talk about heaven. I get that. I really do. In general, I agree with that. The gospel message is intended to draw people to God because of his love. Unfortunately, we as a church has often used it as a club. Of hell is a club to, to scare people to God. And, and Jesus never did that. He always taught this with his people. 
And he lured and showed his love to outsiders. This is an insider message, church. Understand that. However, here's my point. How do you measure love without sacrifice? That's not rhetorical. How do you measure love without sacrifice? Tell me how. Show me how much you love someone without making any kind of sacrifice for them. Show me. You can't do it. At least not well. That's why many relationships and marriages end when the infatuation ends and the sacrifice must begin. They end right there because it's not love. Love sacrifices. It's what it does. Likewise, show me how you, well you can love and create a loving environment for those whom you love without firm, just, and even at times severe judgment of wrong and evil. Don't tell me you love your kids when you consistently allow someone in their lives who does great harm. Don't tell me you love your community when you fail to support a system of law enforcement that justly removes people who refuse to obey the law and put others in harm's way. Don't say you love someone or something that you won't sacrifice and make tough decisions to protect and take care of. It's part and parcel of love. In a fallen world, it's what's required. The Apostle Paul said this when writing to the church in Rome. He stated this in the ninth chapter, that he wished if possible, if possible, it's a hypothetical, that he could be forever cursed, that he could be cut off from Christ if that would save some of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, a people who had turned their backs on their Messiah, and it broke Paul's heart so much so he said, Lord, curse me, let me be accursed if somehow some of my brothers and sisters could be saved. (laughs) He was saying he'd be willing to experience hell for the sake of his brothers and sisters. And if you know Paul's life, it was a little bit like that. The man was beaten everywhere he went. His wounds were barely healed when he was walking back into the same town that just beat him so that he could keep telling them about Jesus. He was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. Paul modeled love maybe like no other fallen human ever has because love sacrifices. Randy Jensen was the director of Fellowship of Christian Athletes in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was an uh, alumni of the college I went to, a very liberal school. He began spending time on our campus in hopes of gathering a group of Christian athletes and I know, I'm sure he was mocked and and made fun of for his beliefs by plenty of people who he approached. I can certainly imagine that. But he kept coming. He kept coming even though he was made fun of. He was mocked. 
by these young punk college kids who thought they knew everything. And he kept coming long enough to befriend this misdirected, self-centered, beer-drinking, party-seeking, sexually promiscuous college kid whose life was spiring down to the pit of hell. He befriended me. And he told me about a Jesus that I'd never heard about before. A Jesus like this that that knew my sins and, and was willing to suffer for them for my sake. And it changed my life. It's changed my life forever. It, it changed my wife's life. My wife, whom I was dating at that time, I dragged her. I dragged her at that season into my little slice of hell. I'd hurt her in so many ways. But she knew Jesus then. I'd hurt her so much I had to apologize. I had to ask her forgiveness. Even at that point, I I went to her parents and said, please forgive me for the way I've treated your daughter. And because of this, Jesus, 32 years later, she's still forgiving me. She still does it. It's awesome. It's amazing. Church, do you realize that nothing else you do screams the supreme worth of Jesus and what he did for you than willingly and joyfully accepting suffering for his sake and for others? Do you realize that? That's why a Christian rarely thinks twice. That's why a hearing Christian, one who's heard this, rarely thinks twice about self-sacrifice for the sake of others. I mean, when you grasp the infinite sacrifice Jesus made for you, how can you question the temporal one we may need to make for others to hear this message? How do we even question that? A hearing Christian wouldn't just show up to church on Sunday after Sunday for themselves. They would willingly and joyfully suffer the loss of their time, of their resources, of their talents to do for others things that they could help them meet and know and follow this Jesus who's done this for us. A hearing Christian would make music with their talents. They'd make coffee or greet people or host small groups with their hospitality. They would, they would hear, as they heard, they would teach, they would shepherd, they would organize, they would lead kids. This is what hearing Christians would do. Hearing Christians willingly go places, they do things, and they make conscious decisions in their life that cost them something. Because they want others to know about Jesus, who paid everything to redeem them from the horrors and judgment that our sin deserves. A hearing Christian would not, they could not, Ignore their neighbors, their co-workers, their family and friends who don't know Jesus and the sacrifice he's made for them. No, this deeply concerns a hearing Christian. In fact, it concerns them more than any other concern that they are concerned about. 
Because everything else, everything else a hearing Christian is concerned about will pass. It will one day no longer exist. But people will. A hearing Christian cannot shake this. And that's why a hearing Christian needs to hear and listen to what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. Some of you may need to respond to this truth right here and now. And for some of you, it may be trusting Jesus for the first time, a Jesus who suffered infinitely for you so that you could rejoice infinitely in him. I want you to know you don't have to do anything to impress me. You don't have to do anything to impress God. You simply tell him, I need you. I trust you. Jesus, I, for the first time, recognize what you have done for me. And I believe you. I believe what you did for me. We're going to have some people up here to pray with you as we close. Um, and you may want to come up and talk with someone. We would welcome that. You may want to contact one of us on staff, fill out a, a card for more information. All those things are ways you can do that. Don't do this without telling someone or walking through it with someone, but take that step if you need to today. I know many of you here have taken that step already. I realize that this is a message primarily for us. However, your ears have gotten clogged, just like mine do. You've forgotten how great a salvation you have and you have filled your life with secondary pursuits. You don't serve others. You don't sacrifice for others. You don't give much thought at all the spiritual states of your neighbors or coworkers or friends. You're following some Jesus, but it's not this Jesus of the Bible. And he's calling you back today. He's putting his love on display a love that you cannot shake and that will pursue you to your last breath. You need to reprioritize your life and passions and now is a great time to talk to God about that. So here, here's how we want to close today. Uh, the worship team is just going to play a little bit and just give some space for you to have that conversation with God right now. Maybe it's that first step of repentance and just accepting Jesus, acknowledging, I've blown it. I don't know the way I need you, Jesus. For others, it may be just recognizing and reprioritizing and admitting that and hearing him, hearing him call you for something so much more significant. Have that conversation now. You can do it on your knees. You can do it in your seat. You can come up and pray with someone as they come up. But we're just going to give you a few moments to do that. And then, and then we're going to sing the song.
We're going to sing a song and, and, and speak some truths over you of, of the blessings that God has for you when you come into his family, when you accept his sacrifice and become his child. So let them just wash over you and join in if you want to, but hear what these things are speaking to you.